2: Available front row massaging seats, available 33 inch all terrain tires, and available multi terrain select. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Street Radio from the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
3: Nutrition is really complex. And aside from the most general advice, which, as you know, I encapsulated in my seven-word mantra, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, after that, it gets really messy.
2: That was Michael Pollan, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma and more recently, Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. I'll be speaking with him later in the show. First, it's time to chat with Raina Javeri at Milk Street about this week's recipe. Hi, Raina. How are you?
4: I'm well, Chris. Thank you.
2: This week, one of my favorites. I love puddings. All English desserts, I guess, are puddings because that's what it says on the menu. This is sticky toffee pudding, but it is sweet on sweet.
4: Chris, British puddings, like American desserts, can be really, really sweet, but I think we've entered the new age of grown-up versions of our desserts. So a couple of things about this recipe. It uses rye flour, which is all the rage these days. Uh, we mix this in the batter with all-purpose flour, and it gives a much more complex and nuanced nuttiness to the cake, which I love. We use dates, which are sweet, but we put them through a food processor that gives us a really nice texture. And we use coffee and there's some bitterness in the coffee and it also adds some nice color to the cake.
2: So some sugar, egg, spices, everything else to make the batter. So when you're done with that, here's the question, do you actually have to steam this like in in a special mold like you would in England?
4: So good news for you, this is not, we're not doing it the traditional way they do it in England, but we're using a bundt pan in your regular oven, and the one thing we're doing differently is taking aluminum foil, covering the bundt pan really tightly with it, and that helps keep the moisture inside the cake while it's baking. So no special equipment, but you still get a really moist, dense, rich cake at the end.
2: Okay, the cake's nice, but what about the sauce? That's always the best part.
4: I knew you'd want to talk about this because this has the other rye ingredient in this recipe, and that is liquid rye. We're going to use a spicy rye whiskey in our toffee sauce. I think you'll be very happy about that.
2: Is there a theme here, Raina? (laughs) Rye on rye. That's very good.
4: I think we figured you out, Chris. So we, we make lots of this toffee sauce. It has lots of the rye whiskey in it. And some of it goes over the cake, and there's plenty left over to drizzle over individual slices when we serve it.
2: Perfect. Sticky toffee pudding reimagined, rye flour, rye whiskey, and you don't actually have to steam it. Thank you, Rena. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. All of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She, of course, is star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and also author of Home Cooking 101.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. And who do we have on the line? This is Julie from Brooklyn, New York. And I imagine you have a very good question.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to speak with both of you. My family and I went to Japan this summer, and we really enjoyed the many wonderful meals that we had there. So we often use some of the standard ingredients from Japan, like soy sauce, miso, mirin. But I'd love your thoughts on what other ingredients are key to be able to make the bulk of Japanese dishes and what we should skip as we start trying to stock our Japanese pantry at home.
5: Isn't that fun to have a whole new bunch of things to play with Chris, do you have any additions to what she's already said? First of all,
2: the great thing is a lot of this stuff is available in a lot of supermarkets now. I mean, even, you know, the panko <laughs> breadcrumbs, everybody uses them, even nah. when you're not cooking Japanese. I would say, yeah, you'd want the, you know, kombu, definitely. Bonito flakes mm-hmm. is very good for a stock or just to flavor water of some kind, sesame seeds, brown rice vinegar, some sake, some mirin. Oh, I right. use mirin sometimes. If I'm poaching chicken, I just put a couple cups of mirin in with the water, which actually adds a lot of flavor. I mean, those would be wasabi, Mm -hmm. of course. I think those are a few of the things. Right, Sarah? Yeah,
5: absolutely. And um, you can actually buy, although it's very expensive, fresh wasabi. In this country, there's a place... Called Pacific Farms, that grows wasabi. The stuff we get is horseradish. And wow. Japanese sushi is ground up uh, colored horseradish, right. sometimes with uh, a little bit of mustard in it. The fresh stuff is unfortunately very expensive and sort of very ephemeral. It's uh, a rhizome like ginger. But what I wanted to mention was a terrific authority on Japanese foods. Her name is mm-hmm. Hiroko Shimbo. She has many books. Any one of her books would be a good source because she'll also tell you about really good brands. Her most recent is Hiroko's American Kitchen. And what that is is she'll take basic Japanese mother sauces, her kind of Japanese mother sauces, meaning so combining certain ingredients and then show you many ways you could use them in your American kitchens. But in the back of her book, she has a great list of where you can find Japanese ingredients. You know, real, oh, real ones, not just great. the generic ones. I would recommend, yes. so it's Hiroko, S-H-I-M-B-O. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yes. Oh, that sounds
1: great. It would be so nice to actually have specific brands.
5: Right. Well, Because when
1: you walk in, even soy sauce, it's sort of hard to know what exactly you should buy and what to use it for. Well, a
2: lot of, cultures too, they have different levels of quality and they use them for different things. Right. Some use for cooking, some use just for flavoring. It's not just soy sauce or it's not just fish sauce. Right. It's, it's specific to a particular application.
1: That's well, great. Yeah. I love the idea of actually having the list from the cookbook to yes. take with me when I go there. Yes. That would be really helpful. So thank you for
5: that. You thank know, you. Thank you.
2: No, I have to go by the
5: yeah, oh, it's wonderful.
2: So now Sarah Moulton and Christopher Kimball are cooking Japanese specialties. Right. Ha- the world has changed.
5: <laughs> right.
1: So, right.
2: Thank you so much for calling. Thank you yeah. for
1: having me, and we're very excited for the coming issues of Milk Street. Thank, thank you. you.
2: Thank you so much. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Kim Levy.
2: Hi, Kim. What can we help you with?
6: Well, I inherited some Wilton baking pants. And I'm not able to find information on the web to figure out how much cake I need to fill these pans. I have four sizes. They're stacking cakes, and they're the original Wilton. The largest one, I think it's 12 half inches. The middle size seems to be about 8 by 8. And then there's two 6 by 6s. And I'm dying to make a stacked cake. I just don't know how much cake to make.
2: You should fill a cake pan half to two-thirds full. So what I would do is fill, let's say two-thirds. Fill these three pans with water to their roughly two-thirds full, a little bit less maybe. Pour that off Ah. into a big measuring cup to figure out how much volume that is. Then go look at your recipe and sort of back into the amount of batter you need.
6: I'm a self taught baker. I'm learning as I go. And the water truck, thank you. That's perfect. I would never have thought of that. I think Sarah's proud of me right now. Are you
5: proud of me? I'm very proud of you. But did you really go to the Wilton website to try to see if they had anything? Because I'm looking at something right now. It's a baking serving guide, which has. How many inches, uh, the number of servings, the cups of batter. Okay. Um, I so think it's the y- cups of batter that I need to Well, look that at. back to what Chris said, I, which I, yeah. Chris, brilliant, brilliant. Um, <laughs> okay. I,
2: I'm going away for a month. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> the only thing is that you. The problem with the batter is it's obviously whipped, right? It's beaten. So sure. you'll have to sort of guess how much batter recipe will make, yeah. but you'll do it once and you'll get it.
5: Yeah. They might okay. help you. Yeah.
6: The other set of cake pans are flower shaped.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: And I thought, oh, I have no idea. Right, that's tricky. <laughs> how do you measure that? It's not an eight by eight pan. It's not yeah. you well, you, nothing. Here's what I would do once you market.
2: measure the water, go look yeah. at the cake recipe to see what it makes. If it says two eight inch or two nine inch or two ten inch uh, layers, then you'll know right. exactly what you need because you can measure those eight or nine or ten inch layers with water as well. Yeah. That's how to do it.
5: You mathematician, okay. you. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, runs in the family. <laughs> okay. Though. All right. Anyway, good for give that you. A shot. Yes. Thanks for oh, calling. Thank you both. Thanks, Kim. I really appreciate it.
2: This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, please give us a ring at one eight five five four bowtie. That's eight five five 426 You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
1: Hi, I'm Christine Fillmore. I'm from Henniker, New Hampshire.
5: Hi, Christine. What is your question?
1: It seems like a really easy one. Um, how much water do you really need to make pasta?
5: Well, I mean, the idea being that you want to get rid of some of that starch that's on the noodles, on whatever dried noodles they are, because they have a lot of starch. So about, you know, four to six, I use six quarts of very well-salted water. You should be able to taste the salt, and you really do have to add the salt before you add the pasta, otherwise it won't absorb it. Yeah, lots of water, and stir it as soon as you get it in there, and don't add any oil. Because you want to get rid of some of that starch, but you also don't want to put a slick on the noodles so that when you put on the sauce, it just slithers off.
2: Is it time Mm -hmm. for the other side, the dark side? There is no
5: other side. (laughs) If you ask any Italian, they would agree with what I said. No,
2: Now, now, I know for a fact that a lot of Italians will undercook their pasta and put it in a skillet oh. and finish it with a sauce. Sauce, Oh, I agree and, and, with that one. And sometimes they also don't use as much water because they want a lot of starch. Because the starch can actually help thicken the sauce and help the sauce attach itself to the pasta. If you go to one of those big Italian restaurants from the 70s in New York, you get a big plate of spaghetti with a red sauce, and the red sauce just falls right off. Right. Because it's not starchy enough. So. Starch can be your friend when cooking pasta, Oh, absolutely.
5: Right? But, you know, we can only speculate about what those restaurants did. But maybe they cooked it ahead of time, rinsed it yeah. off, which also uh, is a, a complete no-no, yeah. and then just dipped it in hot water to reheat it. It's possible that Now,
2: we also just—one uh, of our editors was in Peru, and they have a pesto that came over. The, a lot of Italians went to Peru.
5: Isn't that interesting? But just like use, a lot of Japanese. Yeah, that's yeah. true, too.
2: But they didn't have basil. They had spinach and some—and they condensed milk and some other things. Anyway, they made a pesto— but they cooked the pesto with the pasta for two or three minutes in a skillet so that everything got really combined. And so that idea of a little starch uh, and the pasta and the sauce, that makes a wonderful Combination because they really sticks Right.
5: Well, I always finish my, I really, I undercook it. I take it under al dente, drain right. it, save some of the pasta right. cooking liquid, add the pasta to the sauce, and then finish it in the sauce so it absorbs it. So, Christine, I'm sure you're completely confused. Which way are you going to go?
1: <laughs> um, I've actually been leaning Christopher's way. Okay, uh, then. Recently. Yes. Okay, it's there's, really there's one for you. I thought
5: I should use yeah. more.
2: I think we're agreed. I mean, a gallon's fine. Yeah. But just, two minutes undercooked yeah. and finish it in the in skillet saw- uh, yeah. with your sauce.
5: So it absorbs it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That works. And it doesn't work for all sauces, but most sauces. Most sauces, yeah. So.
5: Okay, Christine, thank you. That sounds great. Thank right. you so much. Thank
2: you. You know what we need here in the booth? We need a, a, score, a, sheet. a score sheet on the wall. I, I didn't
5: realize this is competition. I thought we were sharing. Huh.
2: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with Michael Pollan about anything and everything having to do with food, diet, supermarket, saturated fat, sugar, and the power of the food industry. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allegash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
7: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and... Realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do.
5: My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved
1: fennel.
3: My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite.
5: The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection.
0: My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white,
6: that is just so good.
7: I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile.
5: I could imagine like
6: something like, um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice.
3: Pairing allagash white with carrot cake is a thing of beauty.
6: This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice, warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just... Like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White.
3: <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it.
5: A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime. That could be the beer. We are very food minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is
0: yeah, that's really good.
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
1: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
2: This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to talk to Michael Pollan, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, and most recently, Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. I had lunch with Michael a few weeks before this interview, and our far-ranging discussion inspired us to record a similar conversation for Milk Street. Let's start with the first thing I asked you, which is, what are you working on now And you said a book about psychedelics?
3: Yeah, it's a bit of a departure. I'm working on a book inspired by an article I did for The New Yorker last year about the renaissance of scientific research into psychedelics, such as LSD and psilocybin. And it turns out that these drugs, which were a very vital part of psychiatric research in the 50s and early 60s before they became so controversial and then were banned, are very useful, apparently, in treating some various mental conditions, including uh, anxiety at the end of life, depression, addiction. And uh, so I'm taking a look at the, the, you know, following the labs where this work is going on and exploring the, uh, oh, the history of the psilocybin mushroom, which is really fascinating. I guess that's the food co- connection there is that mushroom. But you eat them in very small quantities and they have very unusual effects.
2: Does this fit into the very modern and new concept of the body being a drug factory itself. I mean, we manufacture our own drugs all the time. And so the idea of these outside drugs, it's less outside and inside. It's that our body consumes and produces drugs constantly.
3: Yeah, and there are neurotransmitters that our brains produce that have a lot to do with our mood and our um, outlook on things. And there's no question that these drugs are kind of hijacking those systems in one way or another. And that there are probably endogenous or, or you know, body-produced versions of psychedelics that, that kick in at, at moments of great crisis for the individual and might explain things like dreaming, too, and, and uh, other kinds of hallucinations. You know, the whole thing started, they started looking at LSD thinking they had a, um, a way to model schizophrenia, and that you could induce a temporary psychosis with these drugs, and that this would be very helpful in understanding schizophrenia, and it, and it prompted all this neurochemistry. And some people say that we really wouldn't understand the whole idea of the neurotransmitter networks like serotonin if it had not been for LSD.
2: I just finished a book called What a Fish Knows. Uh, you may have read it. I don't know. No, I haven't. It's a fascinating book. It, it makes a, a very strong case that that fish actually are sentient beings and uh, can use tools and and are able to think, and it's fascinating. Do, do you think that someday someone might write a book called What a Plant Knows? That is, <laughs> the plants actually can think or or
3: closer to being humans than, than how we currently perceive them? Well, I happen to believe plants do have a form of consciousness. It's not our form, and by consciousness, I essentially mean awareness of their environment and an ability to act on that awareness. You know, 2 or 3 years ago I wrote a piece for The New Yorker called The Intelligent Plant. And you know, using the word intelligence when you think of plants seems really weird, but if you define intelligence as as simply a problem-solving ability, a set of survival skills where you can confront a problem in your environment and figure out how to deal with it. Plants definitely have that. I think we have underestimated them in many, many ways. For example, there are, what is it? I think the lima bean. If you have lima beans in your garden, when they are beset by certain pests, they send out a signal in the form of a volatile chemical that summons another insect that will eat the one that's molesting them. Hmm. So they'll, they'll actually like make a 911 call and bring in other insects to do the job that they can't do themselves. And it all makes sense when you consider that plants are creatures that are rooted in place, so they can't, they don't have our survival strategies. And so all their evolutionary time and effort has gone into uh, biochemistry, developing these remarkable molecules, some of which, by the way, are, are the psychedelics, in order to manipulate mammals either to get them to do things for them or get them to stay away uh, or kill them, they're they're incredibly sophisticated in their ability to manipulate mammals. And the fact that the mammals don't give them any credit for this is probably all to their advantage because they'd rather be thought of as stupid. As soon as you put plants into time-lapse, you realize how much personality they have (laughs) and how much awareness they have. Yeah, we'll find out actually
2: humans are at the bottom of the the ladder of (laughs) of social organization and sentient behavior. Um, Let's move to food. You walk into a grocery store. There's obviously a a science to how they organize the store. Uh, I've interviewed people about that before. How would you change how a grocery store is organized?
3: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, grocery stores are are organized around a a particular goal, which is obviously getting you to move through as quickly as possible and buy as much as possible. And in some cases, slowing you down to make sure that you don't just run in and grab the quart of milk. I guess I would would try to make it more like the shopping experiences I enjoy, which is farmer's markets. You know, in a grocery store, everyone follows the same path, right? It's this kind of counterclockwise uh, path. And since everyone's on the same path, you don't bump into anybody. And one of the really nice things about farmers markets in general is people walk down. It's usually one big aisle. And they walk down that aisle. And often they'll scout. And then they'll walk back up. And so you have a lot more social interaction that happens. It becomes a really a civic space. And in fact, people have studied this. Sociologists have studied this. And they say, people have 10 times as many conversations in the farmer's market than they do in the supermarket. Hmm. And I think that's a plus. So I guess I'd I'd like to somehow create more of that experience and something that feels less programmed. And the music. I would kill the music. I mean, the music's horrible.
2: I think the best thing about a farmer's market are the farmers. We should, maybe there yeah, should be some farmers in the store. <laughs> that would be Yeah, nice. well, that would be good. Wouldn't Bring be some nice? farmers into the store. I farmers. like that idea. Yeah. So... I read that Target has started a new program whereby doctors can prescribe free fruits and vegetables for lower-income families. So the question is, how do you get fresh, high-quality produce into a food desert, which is usually the lowest-income neighborhoods?
3: Well, I mean, if – I don't know who's paying for that program, uh, who's paying the cost of those prescriptions, but that's the key. You know, the other model like that that I think has been really successful is the the double bucks programs where they get local nonprofits or foundations to donate the cost of um, coupons that essentially double the value of what you buy in the farmer's market and the USDA has done trials where they've given out these coupons too in underserved areas as soon as you do that in a in an underserved area farmers markets will move to that area that money yeah. will command the food and it and it tends to show up pretty quickly and the demand for those coupons is enormous i had a student a journalism student write a piece about a um, a program like that in san diego and people would wait online for hours, three or four hours, to get a $2 coupon entitling them to buy citrus fruit. Hmm. So, you know, the idea that the, the poor want to eat junk is belied by the fact that people will wait three or four hours for a coupon allowing them to buy fruit. So I think programs to create these kind of coupons, and, you know, they don't have to be redeemable in the farmer's market. The beauty of that idea, of course, is that you're helping farmers as well as helping the poor and it's very direct and there's no you know nobody's taking a piece out of it but i think coupons for fresh produce redeemable in supermarkets would also be really a, a wonderful idea and you know we often talk about how could you change the subsidy the incentives in the in the farm bill to to produce more produce fresh fruits and vegetables and less processed food And the the challenge that you always run up against is that when you subsidize something, you tend to get surpluses of it. So if you want to subsidize that kind of food, you don't subsidize supply, you subsidize demand. And so to take some of that money we use to subsidize corn and soy and instead create coupons that we would give either to food stamps recipients or WIC recipients or Social Security recipients... I think that's how you begin to subsidize, you know, getting us up to the five serving of fruits and vegetables that the government's been telling us for years is gonna do so much for our health.
2: It's 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 so easy and so clear and makes so much and sense. So It'll never happen. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> what it's always the inverse, you know <laughs> the the yeah, best easy idea never happens. Um there was a, a, a recent study about saturated fats. It was a meta-analysis across, I guess, a lot of data saying there really was no discernible benefit to a diet with less saturated fats. I'm not sure what to make of that, but is saturated fat been held up as a villain for too long, too much?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it has been unfairly demonized. And in fact, there's—I just saw uh, an article that's now been shown that the sugar lobby in the '60s was trying to direct a lot of fire at saturated fat to protect itself and take the focus off of sugar. And of course, we're—we're—you know—we're learning that our obsession with fats of all kinds and saturated fat in particular was really overblown. And we made a mistake, or we should say the public health community made a mistake um, by advising everybody to get off fat. Fat's an essential nutrient. Last time I looked at this, when I was researching in defense of food, there had been only two studies out of the hundreds of studies done that had found any link between saturated fat and heart disease. Even though the American Heart Association is still telling people to avoid saturated fat. So the inertia in these fields and the unwillingness of public health authorities to admit they got it wrong is really what stands in the way. And the current thinking is that, of course, that refined carbohydrates like sugar are much worse for your heart than fat. You know, it's like Arthur Goldman, uh, the uh, scriptwriter, said about Hollywood, no one knows anything. <laughs> they know a little bit. It's not like they know nothing, but they know a lot less than you would think from reading all the studies And that nutrition is really complex. You can't take the the nutrient out of the context of the food. You can't take the food out of the context of the diet. You can't take the diet out of the context of the lifestyle. There's so many confounding factors. And that, you know, I think uh, aside from the most general advice, which, as you know, I encapsulated in my seven word mantra, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. After that, it gets really messy.
2: Uh, what about truth in advertising? In Europe, inspectors can go into stores, take that extra virgin olive oil off the shelf, test it. If it doesn't meet the standards, then they could actually have it removed from the shelves. In this country, uh, I just spoke to a guy who tests honey with pollen analysis, and a large percentage of that local wildflower honey is actually from China. Why is there so little uh, truth in advertising backed up by regulation in this country?
3: Well, remember we've given corporations First Amendment right to say pretty much whatever they want, and they're now challenging it. I mean, uh, the uh, Pum Wonderful Company, you know, got in hot water with the government for saying that their pomegranate juice helped you, and I kid you not, cheat death. Um, And the (laughs) FD, the the FTC, I have not met anyone who cheated death yet, but maybe. Well, they're not drinking pomegranate juice. And the FTC went after them, and the Resnicks, who own the company and are very, uh, very wealthy landowners in California, they're suing, and they're going to take it to the Supreme Court, and they're suing, as I understand it, on First Amendment grounds. And of course, the Supreme Court has given that precedent, that corporations do have First Amendment rights. In terms of inspecting the foods, like the example of the olive oil in England, we don't have enough inspectors to check the food for Bacteria you know the food inspection is woefully underfunded and the FDA doesn't have the resources and the first first priority is before fraud is is safety obviously and um, and I think we're only checking about two percent of the food that comes into this country so what about this argument the argument
2: is the consumer ultimately can change the marketplace by how the consumer spends their money so if we don't buy Fruit Loops, whatever, uh, and buy only healthy foods, then the market will follow versus the other argument that really government and and journalists like yourself need to inform the public and move the public along. Do, Do you think the public has a responsibility here it's not living up to?
3: Uh, yeah, but the Republic needs to be informed. I mean, the, you know, the the GMO labeling is is the classic example. I mean, if you want to let the public decide whether this is a good technology or not, you you have to equip them with the information to make that decision. I do think the consumer has a very important role to play in terms of you know deciding what they're going to eat and drink. But very often the information that they're relying on is food marketing information, which is as we know is tainted. I, I don't think. People are quite aware how many marketing messages for food they see in a day. It's, it's in the thousands. And, and the dollars spent is last time I checked, it was something like forty two billion dollars a year to market food to us. Uh, the, the, the total amount of money the government spends um, offering nutrition advice, okay, the food pyramid, the eat five servings a day, the you know avoid trans fats, whatever it is. That all that government spending, which is in the three hundred million or so range, was less than the marketing budget for one pepsiCo s k u one product item one snack huh. food um so you know the information is is so imbalanced that this idea of a consumer democracy falls apart
2: last question uh you know civilization has this cycle w- where things start out very simply, it become more complicated, the government, the regulations, there's agribusiness. Is there a point, you think, in the history of civilization where we, in terms of the food supply, kind of got it right? Now, is, is there a sweet spot there?
3: It's It's hard to argue with the success of the food system in terms of providing lots of attractive food really, really cheaply. At some point, if you judge this by public health and obesity, it was too much of a good thing. Sometime around 1980, it looks like, which is when the obesity epidemic begins. You know, what is the goal of a food system? It's, it's to keep a population alive and then healthy. Ironically, one of the best times for public health was during the World Wars when food was rationed. You know, meat butter, eggs, sugar, and gasoline were in very short supply and became very precious. And lo and behold, heart disease rates plummeted, chronic disease of diabetes was down, chronic disease of all kinds was down. Now, we don't know what that means exactly. Was it the loss of the sugar? Was it the loss of the saturated fat? Or maybe it was the loss of the gasoline and people were walking a lot um, You know, or biking a lot. It may be all of those things together. So I hate to point to such a uh, such a stringent time as a golden age of any kind, but but if you want to measure it by the health of the population, and it was also a, a time of great people felt this enormous common cause, and, and um, you know social the sense of social well-being was quite high in those periods too. Mm. Now it was war; it was horrible too. But anyway, that's off the top of my head. You know, might start by looking at that.
2: If you're running for president, the headline in The air Times would be tomorrow. Pollan calls for war to improve national <laughs> and, and, and
3: health. Rationing. <laughs> yeah, rationing. <laughs> well, this is why I'm never going to run for public office, because I say these crazy things.
2: <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. Really,
3: really a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, great pleasure talking to you, Chris. Nice. Anytime. Okay.
2: That was Michael Pollan, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma. The topic of fake news is in the headlines recently, which of course makes me think of fake health claims. Margarine over butter, saturated fat worse than sugar, eat no more than four eggs per week, and of course the intentional confusion around labels such as organic, natural, grass-fed, and cage-free. We do live in an information age, or perhaps an age of fake information. That reminds me of the old newspaper column, Ripley's Believe It or Not. They once wrote about Lucky, the two-headed calf, Maybe we always lived in an age of fake information. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to make some eggnog with Jeffrey Morgenthaler. He's author of Bar Book, Elements of Cocktail Technique. He's also the manager at Clyde Common near Portland's Ace Hotel and Pepe Lamoco, the Ace Hotel's basement bar. Good morning. How are you? Great. This is an eggnog morning, evidently. Yes. (laughs) So, eggnog started with some other drinks or came out of the tradition. Milk punch or egg milk punch or egg flip. How are they different than eggnog?
8: You know, it it's really muddied the history when you look at eggnog. It goes back you know, 15, 1600s. We don't see the first real, egg, what we think of as eggnog today, recipe probably until Jerry Thomas uh, mid 1800s.
2: So the idea of dairy and alcohol which is Part of this tradition goes back a long time.
8: A long time. I mean you see coquito in Puerto Rico, you see avocado. What, what, what is coquito? That's essentially an, an eggnog with coconut milk. you see avocat in Holland. Eggs and liquor blended together. You see rompope in Mexico. So it goes it's all over the world. It's hard to hard to pinpoint when people first put dairy and eggs in together with Alcohol. So
2: how does this relate to punch? A friend of mine used to collect punch bowls, but they let this stuff sit two or three months sometimes. Does it come out of that tradition, these big bowls of punch, or is it totally different?
8: You see the large format eggnogs and, and flips, you know, made with uh, often wine or ale. When you get to Jerry Thomas's eggnog recipe, that's when you see the first single-serving eggnog. We do it as a punch sometimes, but I I think there's something kind of unappetizing about a big bowl of dairy and eggs just sitting out at room temperature with a (laughs) ladle in it.
2: Are you feeling lucky today, sir? Yeah, exactly. And the term nog, where does that come from?
8: Probably comes from noggin, which I think refers to the fireplace poker that was used Hmm. to heat a flip.
2: Okay, so are we gonna do a traditional eggnog? Are we doing your version of eggnog, what are we doing?
8: We're gonna tweak it a little bit. You know, our thought was that, you know, original eggnogs and flips use brandy. We wanted to mix it up a little bit. What is tequila but agave brandy? So we're using a really nice Añejo tequila and pairing that with a Montillado sherry, which is dry and nutty and is gonna go great with the earthy tequila. Okay, so let's, let's do it. All right. So, I like to start with just two eggs in a blender. I'm just gonna start it on low speed. I don't wanna whip it into like a cake batter. And then I'm gonna slowly add some super fine sugar. I'm adding it slowly because I want it to dissolve in the eggs to that. I'm going to add two and a half ounces of Amontillado Sherry and 2 ounces of... I've got this Fortaleza Añejo tequila. It's really earthy, but it's also got a lot of vanilla from the bourbon barrels. Already smells like eggnog. 6 ounces of whole milk, 4 ounces of heavy cream right in the blender. And that's it.
2: I should point out you did this with the top of the blender off the entire time. I did. <laughs> and the things got... Closer and closer to the top. Yeah.
8: So, <laughs> I've obviously done this before. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, so here's what I want to know. When someone... People ask me this all the time. How can you eat raw eggs? And I have my answer. What, what's your answer?
8: Well, there's alcohol in them. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that's at this point, answer. it's been through the blender for, for enough time that it's, it's perfectly uniform. There's none of that chunkiness that I think of people associate with the Rocky movies. You know, nothing like uh, whole eggs just going down the gullet. To me, it doesn't even really register as egg, eggy. It's just creamy, delicious drink.
2: Cheers. Mm.
8: You know, you talk about aging eggnog. Oh, and this, this is great when it sits around for a few days, too. Refrigerated, of course.
2: You know what I like about this? It doesn't have that harsh brandy thing. No. It's, it's a little smoother and more subtle.
8: And it contains mm. tequila. But it doesn't really register as... No. A margarita.
2: Still so doesn't look like one. That is fabulous. Jeffrey, thank you so much. This thank is you. a whole new world of eggnog, and it will change my breakfast plans <laughs> around, <laughs> the, around the holidays. Thank you. This is Most Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and also author of Home Cooking 101. That's moe, M O W I, salmon.us to learn more.
4: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello?
2: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness.
8: It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
6: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go?
5: I am very ready, Chris.
2: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, this is Sheila Kale from Cleveland, Ohio. How are you? I am wonderful.
6: How are you?
2: I'm good. I'm ready to answer, well, try to answer your question anyway.
6: Okay, so um, frequently you'll see an instruction in a recipe to put a pat of butter in a fry pan and melt it and add a little oil, like vegetable oil, to raise the smoke point. And I always wondered why would that work? Because wouldn't the milk solids burn at the same temperature no matter what?
2: Uh-oh. That's a really good question. I was taught, as probably you were too. Karen, I was. I was. To add oil to raise the smoke temperature. It doesn't really make any sense because the water is going to have to evaporate first, right? Butter is like seventeen, eighty 80% water. And until that happens, it's not getting over 212, right? Right. But then when it gets over that, and then those milk solids are just
5: Gonna burn. Gonna burn,
2: right?
5: Yeah. I mean, it's why the French always cooked with clarified butter, Uh. which is butter oil. So when you melt butter, it separates into three layers. The top layer... Lovely, called the scum, is actually <laughs> protein. And then the middle layer, the clear stuff, is the butter oil. And oh. then the bottom layer is the milk solids. And so when you clarify butter, you skim off the scum and you pour off the oil and leave the milk solids behind. And then you've got butter oil that you can take to a higher, much higher smoke point, although it doesn't have the same flavor as regular butter. Or you can do ghee, which is the Indian version, where you just simmer the butter until the milk solids sort of toast and evaporate on the bottom of the pan, giving it a nice, nutty taste, and the protein disappears. So I think you're completely right, Sheila. It's stupid, and it doesn't work. (laughs) So is I that don't know. a professional term? No, you know what? So, so, you know, I grew up in that, as Chris often reminds me, in that traditional French way where we clarify butter and we use it. And I'm just – first of all, it's out of a pound of butter, you only get like 12 ounces of butter oil, so it's wasteful. But secondly, I just can't be bothered to do that. So what I do is I start with oil. And I finish with butter. Oh,
2: that's smart.
5: So at the very end of the recipe, I'll just throw in a few pats of butter if I want that butter taste. And it's the milk solids and the protein that has that flavor. Hmm. So thank you. You know, I'm glad you made us think about that uh, because I I never had before. I was taught the same thing, even at that that grand Harvard of cooking schools, which is what Julia called the CIA. I think we were taught the same thing, and it doesn't make any sense.
2: This is why you're on the show with me. Because I actually learned from you. It was one of those things I just assumed to be true.
5: Well, yeah, well, I just learned from Sheila, actually, because yeah. she questioned it. So yeah. thank you, Sheila. Yeah. Good for you. I can't
6: tell you how thrilled I am to be on the phone with you guys. You are both heroes of mine.
5: Oh, thank you.
2: Thank you so much for calling. It's just been a great play. That was a fabulous question. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. that Terrific.
5: made my day. You.
4: Have a nice day. Okay. okay.
2: If you'd like your cooking question answered, please give us a ring at 1-855-4-BOWTIE. That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
5: Welcome. You are on Milk Street Radio, and who am I talking to?
6: Hi, this is Tom Josteski. Hi,
5: Tom. Do you have a question for us today?
6: Yeah. So when I watch cooking shows on TV, I often see chefs, when they mince garlic, the garlic doesn't stick to their knife, but every time I try it at home, it sticks to the knife. And it just sort of drives me crazy. And I'm wondering if you have any tips about how to prevent garlic from sticking to the knife when you're mincing it.
2: Well, that's why they invented special effects.
5: I was going to say, garlic sticks always. It always
2: sticks. But before we get to that, I would say, though, I almost never mince or press garlic. The reason is it creates that really strong garlic flavor because you're breaking down the compounds. Lydia Bastianich, you know her show probably, Lydia's Italy, she said in Italy, they tend to just use whole cloves or crushed whole cloves, and they use it to flavor the oil or whatever. And then you don't actually eat the garlic cloves. And that's why you get the nice, subtle taste of garlic without the aftertaste. So I think crushed cloves are wonderful. You can take also a whole head of garlic, cut off the top quarter, throw it in a stew or soup for an hour or two, then take it out and press the cloves into it. And you get a nice, buttery, mild garlic flavor. So I might maybe um, take garlic and take a little microplane zester or something just to add at the end, but I don't love minced garlic. I mean, Sarah, do you still do
5: it? Yeah, I sure do. It's funny. I have three different... I was like, oh, what do I say first? The thing that Lydia mentioned, of course, we should bow down to her. She's great. But something I've started doing, and it's intuitive, and I don't even know if it makes sense, I start the garlic, cold smash garlic in cold oil and slowly bring it up because I figure I pull out more. But my feeling is, and maybe I'm wrong, that when you mince garlic and you cook it low and slow for a while, slow, that it mellows and that it's fine. I think when you eat raw garlic, that's when you get garlic breath. So I'm not against mincing or sauteing garlic, I think, and I want more garlic flavor, but not the, you know, intense stuff that gives you bad breath, just that wonderful, sweet depth of flavor. But, back to your original question, so I don't know if you're going to jump, you know, and switch to just the the Lydia Bastianich or Chris Kimball method, but... If you want to keep the garlic from sticking to your knife, just sprinkle some kosher salt on top of it. Right. And the kosher salt will, A, act as an abrasive, so makes it even easier to mince it. But also keep it from sticking to your knife the same way. However, and I learned this from Marcella Hazan... Who I used to, oh, you just one up me. I know, because I used to do all the prep for all the chefs at Good Morning America. So I was, you know, the kitchen helper. And and so every time I was mincing garlic, I was mincing it the way that Jacques Pepin had taught me the last time I saw him. Because he kept changing everything, and then I'd do it that way, and he'd be like, why are you doing it? At any anyway, rate, she didn't like it, because she felt like salt made the garlic wet, and then it didn't cook hmm. properly. So I don't think we've given you an answer at well, all. Well, no.
2: If you want to mince your garlic, you could spray the knife, I guess. Oh, that's nonstick spray. Of course you
5: could. Now you're making sense. Hey,
2: we finally agree,
5: man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Any rate. I don't know what you do with all that information there. Just
2: try cloves or lightly smash cloves. Just try it once and see if you like it better. Sarah's going like, I don't think
5: so. Or try the kosher salt. Oh, the kosher salt, that's good
2: too. But anyway, give one of them a shot. Let us know. Thank you for calling. Okay. The Great Garlic Mm -hmm. War. Yeah. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It's time to talk to our regular contributor, Dan Pashman, of the Sporkful Podcast, who asked the question, is a long line at a restaurant really a good thing? Dan, how are you? Good, Chris. How
0: are you? So what insane bit of advice do you have this week? Well, we recently did a, a show on the Sporkful Podcast all about waiting for your food. You know, all over the country and all over the world, there are famous restaurants... Uh, Whether it's a famous slice of pizza in Brooklyn, or a famous barbecue place in Texas, or a famous donut place, or whatever it is, you know, there are just those places that are famous, and in part, they're famous for their insanely long lines. And we wanted to try to learn, like, when does waiting a long time for your food make it taste better? When does it make it taste worse? What should restaurants do to shorten their lines, if anything? I don't know. like Chris, are you the kind of guy who will go and wait an hour because a lot of people told you it was really good? I would in that sometimes the standing in line becomes, oddly enough, a pleasurable experience, but not all the time. I think you're right. It's one of those things like you meet people in line. And in this episode of The Sporkful, we interviewed a professor at MIT named Dick Larson. He goes by the nickname Dr. Q, as in (laughs) Q-U-E-U-E. And he has made his career studying lines. And he calls that kind of line at a famous pizzeria or sausage place in Chicago, a celebratory queue. That's the kind of place where waiting in the line is part of the experience of going, and that can be a lot of fun. And that was fun at Defara Pizza in Brooklyn. Yeah. But you know, I waited an hour for a slice of pizza, and I was glad I waited once because it's pizza being made by this 79-year-old man who's been making it in the same place for 50-plus years. Right. He you know, cuts the basil by himself for every single slice individually it's a painstaking process and it was cool to see him do that and to be part of that history that being said i don't know that i would go back and we also learned a little bit about the effect that heat and dehydration can have on your appetite and we learned in this episode of the sporkful that those things can make you less hungry or feel less hungry even if you aren't in reality less hungry
2: so we're turning slowly to the dark side of waiting (laughs)
0: Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) But you know, Chris, I mean, have you had this issue where it's like, you know, there can be a sort of double-edged sword of expectations when you're waiting a long time. On one hand, the longer you wait, the better you expect it to be. You know, economists refer to it as a sunk cost thing. It's like you have invested so much in it already, you don't want to give up on the line. At that point, you keep waiting and waiting. And you think the longer you wait, the better it sort of has to be for it to be a great experience. But the flip side is, if it isn't that good, you don't really want to admit that to yourself, because then it's sort of like you're admitting that you're kind of a sucker, you know? Well, here's my rule. My rule is I'll wait in line. If you get to the place, it's essentially a small family place,
2: like the pizza place in Brooklyn or, you know, in New Haven has Peppies and Sally's. And for years, I used to wait in those lines. You get inside and you know the people, you're sort of part of the family. That I get. But I'm not going to wait in line for some large, you know, industrial-sized restaurant. It's got to be a small, friendly experience.
0: Right. I'm with you on that, although it's interesting because just down the street from Defara Pizza in Brooklyn, there's another famous pizzeria called B. Spumoni Gardens that also makes very good pizza. And that is also a family-run shop with a long history, but they have a much more industrialized is a strong word, but they got a real system down for cranking out the pizza. And they crank out pizza so fast and it's a much more efficient operation. So on one hand, I kind of admire the efficiency of it. But on the other hand, it does take away a little bit of the charm that your pizza was kind of cooked. It was going to be there sitting there whether or not it was for you kind of thing. How do you feel now, about that it's gotta be the It's got to be the charm. And, and you can actually bring this
2: discussion into the home because I, I have two theories uh, which I've held to for 50 years in terms of preparing meals for guests. One is serve light so they're starving. I mean, that always works. I, I, And the second thing is if you split the cooking duties, always make the dessert. Because they always remember the last thing they ate. Interesting.
0: So so you kinda have to tip your cap to the people who make you wait because you're like, aha, you Because I don't like waiting. What? (laughs) I don't I don't have to be even or fair or
2: what. So 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 what this Dr. Q, his final tally results of all this was what?
0: Well, you know, he didn't wait in the line with me. He is a very impatient person because he studies lines all day long. It drives him crazy when he sees even the slightest inefficiency in a line. So he even admitted to me himself that he's not a fun person to wait in line with. But at the end of the day, I waited an hour for a slice of pizza at this place, and I was glad that I did it because I felt like I was taking part in this history of this place that has been there for a long time, and there's a craft there, and there's so much work that goes into each slice. And I know Chris, you're an admirer of hard workers, and so that was cool. But that being said, I think it's gonna be a long time before I go back. Well, the one thing about DeFaro's is he made every single pizza that's ever been served there since 1960. You gotta respect so that, and it's yeah. kind of a moving thing to see this old man hunched over this counter that he's been hunched over for 50 plus years, you know, doing something that he could do. I'm sure if he lost his eyesight, he could do it just as well, because he's been doing it for so long in this exact way And it isn't like any other slice. He uses a Grana Padano cheese on the slice, similar to a Parmigiano Reggiano. It's sharp. You know, usually you expect pizza cheese to be mozzarella-centric, kind of rich and creamy. And the sharpness was something that the genius of it didn't really hit me until a few hours later. And I suddenly found myself craving more of it. Dan, you did it once. You don't have to do it again. (laughs) All right. Well, next time I'll bring you, Chris. At least then we'll be able to hang out. Dan Pashman from the Sparkville Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. I'm Christopher Kimball.
2: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to make vanilla sugar. Just take half a cup of white sugar. We like to use two dried vanilla beans. That means the pod and the seeds inside. And throw them in a spice grinder, or you can use a small food processor, and process until everything is ground up together. Now you have vanilla sugar. I like to use it in coffee. Some people use it in tea or hot chocolate. It's great in whipped cream as well or even on a fruit salad. For a quick dessert, we'd like to take a grapefruit half, put a little vanilla sugar on top, drizzle with dark rum, and simply broil it until browned. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn and also on our own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. That's where you can also download each week's recipe.
1: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production Assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior Audio Engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production Help, Debbie Paddock. Theme Music by 2Bob Crew. Additional Music by George Brandel Egglaw. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.